The fossil fuel industry is lining up behind far-right authoritarians. We know this happened in America, but guess what? It's happening in India. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. It's kind of counterintuitive. One might think with 24-7 worldwide news coverage, what's going on in India might be more widely known. But on American cable news anyway, the news directors seem to be consistently parochial. If it's not dramatic political theater or celebrity gossip, that's just not covered. What do you know about India in 2021? Probably that, well, the British don't own it anymore, and that it's big, and it's Hindu-run. You probably know there's a lot of severe poverty there. But what do any of us know about its leader, Modi and the farmers' strike. What do we know about the power of fossil fuel interests over government policy there? Hearing just dribs and drabs here and there, my curiosity has been aroused, and I hope yours has too. In a new article titled, The Fossil Fuel Industry is Lining Up Behind Far-Right Authoritarians, a lot of worrisome trends in India are revealed. Our guest today, Basav Sen, recently wrote an article titled Fossil-Fueled Fascism, isn't that lovely, on the fossil fuel industry's financial and political support for the far right of U.S. politics, but the industry's open support for these dangerous politics is not confined to one country. No, it's time to pay attention to India. India is the second most populous country in the world, right behind China with a population of nearly 1.4 billion people, and for perspective, America's third with 330 million. And while a lot of Keeping Democracy Alive listeners understand that nationalistic authoritarianism was not limited to Trump's America, our discussion today aims to shed light on that growing problem in this huge South Asian country. And it affects human rights, climate change, as well as the survival of democracy. Our guest today is Basav Sen. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Yeah, and thank you for having me on your show. Basav Sen has been a director of the Climate Justice uh, Project at the Institute for Policy Studies since February 2017. His work focuses on climate solutions at the national, state, and local level that address racial, economic, gender, and other forms of inequality. Inequality? What? In America? No. Anyway, his prior experience includes strategic corporate research for the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, yes, and campaigning against the World Bank and International Monetary Fund. Talk about uh, Sisyphusian uh, work. (laughs) Uh, Here's how the article starts out. This March, the leading global consulting firm IHS Market, M-A-R-K-I-T, held its 
CERA Week conference, billed as the world's premier energy event, bringing together the who's who list of the global energy industry. The conference's keynote speaker and recipient of the Global Energy and Environment Leadership Award was Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Well, I have three questions for you, Basav. What who or what is the IHS market, and what is their CERA week, and why was Modi featured speaker and award recipient? And as you're answering that, what does that all mean in terms of the power of the petroleum industry over that government? What has Modi done to make them happy? So, yes, um, IHS market is a global consulting firm Uh, consults with the energy industry, which is kind of an odd term because when a lot of these establishment people talk about the energy industry, they mean only the old fossil fuel energy industry um, as against um, any other form of energy such as uh, renewable energy. Uh, And uh, their Sierra Week conference is this annual conference where they bring together uh, people from the fossil fuel industry and uh, political leaders who are connected to it. And when I say people from the fossil fuel industry, it doesn't literally just include um, the big oil and gas and coal companies, but anyone working in that business universe that would, for instance, include uh, people who make equipment and supplies for those industries. It would include, for instance, uh, people in the utility industry who may purchase products from that industry. Uh, It would include people involved in the shipping and transportation of uh, Fossil fuels, for instance, shipping companies who operate oil tankers. Uh, It could include uh, people from the financial world, Mm -hmm. from Wall Street or insurance, who um, either make loans to the industry or uh, provide insurance coverage to their operations, etc. So it brings together this wide spectrum of businesses who are tied to the world of fossil fuels. And um, their award to Narendra Modi and the fact that they made him keynote speaker, it's partly all just political symbolism, but symbolism matters. And I'm saying it's political symbolism because it's a way of playing nice Uh, with a country that is, as you pointed out, uh, the second most populous country in the world. It's one-sixth of the world's population, and it is a large market for goods and services and a major target for foreign investment. And so the business community writ large, not just fossil fuels, would like to play nice with that government for their own economic interests. And particularly when it comes to the fossil fuel industry, and this includes oil and gas, and it also includes, in the case of India, coal, uh, the reason they particularly want to 
align themselves with the Modi government is that the Modi government returns the love. Uh, <laughs> the Modi government is very close to uh, the coal industry in India, and particularly, as I pointed out in my article, to one particular uh, billionaire in India named Gautam Adani, uh, who has grown his fame and fortune by leaps and bounds uh, under the rule of the Bharatiya Janata Party or BJP, which is Narendra Modi's party. Uh, he's also very closely politically connected with the Modi government. Uh, and this is, as I pointed out in my article, Naked Crony Capitalism. Yeah. And it's also an example of how um, the industry has benefited uh, from the Modi government. So obviously that same industry would like to, um, you know, uh, participate in this mutual love fest. Uh, so um, that, in a nutshell, is mm -hmm. why this industry honored Modi and what he's done to make them happy. Imagine that, businesses and government working together, interested in large markets, possible increase in profits. Who'd have ever thunk it? Can you imagine? <laughs> um, your article on fossil-fueled fascism. What does fossil-fueled fascism look like around the world? Great question. And um, in case any listeners are thinking that, oh, it's one country, the United States, or it's two countries, the United States and India, uh, let me point out that the close connections between the fossil fuel in industry and other extractive industries, such as, uh, for example, um, uh, you know, other kinds of mining or logging and forest products and uh, destructive monoculture, agribusiness, etc. The connection between these extractive industries and authoritarian governments is a growing pattern worldwide. Uh, other than the two examples of the United States and India, uh, there's the example of Brazil, yes. uh, where the far-right Bolsonaro government has very close connections with uh, corporate agriculture and cattle ranching businesses uh, who are laying waste to the Amazon rainforest, which is one of the world's largest carbon sinks, yes. uh, and is also, you know, home to an immense amount of biodiversity, and it's also home to lots of indigenous peoples. And mm -hmm. let's not forget that. Mm -hmm. And so, um, this alignment between the Bolsonaro government and these. Um, extractive industries has meant uh, devastation of that ecosystem uh, and a severe threat to the survival of indigenous peoples and ultimately to the survival of humanity with mm. the loss of this carbon sink. Mm. Um, and uh, here I'm using the word fascism a little loosely because technically, without going into the full definition, uh, fascism does imply a certain level of populist support. Uh, fascism is a form of right-wing populism, but mm -hmm. 
uh, even some other non-populist kinds of right-wing authoritarian governments have very close connections uh, with fossil fuels. And, you know, one of the best examples I can think of is Saudi Arabia, uh, where literally the state is an oil company. Um, Saudi Aramco is the name of the uh, big state-owned oil company in Saudi Arabia, and uh, it is literally an arm of the government. Uh, so uh, we could even think of Saudi Arabia as one giant oil company that just has an existence as a state. Hmm. Uh, and it's also, as we know, an extremely dictatorial, repressive regime. Yes. Uh, so um, uh, th this is a growing global pattern, and um, there's actually very good reasons for it. Uh, it you know, this association between right-wing authoritarianism and the fossil fuel industry didn't just happen by accident. Right. It's happened because the fossil fuel and other extractive industries rely on expropriation of land uh, from traditional farming communities and indigenous peoples. They produce immense amounts of ecological destruction, uh, which has direct impacts on communities who depend on access to forests and freshwater and agricultural land and so on. And so the activities of these industries are very unpopular for understandable reasons. And large numbers of people, therefore, organize against these industries and they fight back when uh -huh. these industries try to um, grab their land and pollute their waterways, etc. So what better than to hide behind the coercive arm of an authoritarian government to... Um, repress these protests and um, uh, create a safe environment for the industries mm -hmm. to keep extracting and to keep profiting. And mm -hmm. that's exactly the reason why these industries line up behind authoritarian governments. Well, it is pretty profitable. It's a nice, nice uh, arrangement for them. For those who may mm -hmm. have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about the growth of... Uh, uh, fossil fuel fascism in India. The fossil fuel industry in India is lining up behind far-right authoritarians across the world. Our guest is uh, Basav Sen, who's uh, written about the topic, and uh, he is with the Institute for Policy Studies. And so much to, to dig into there. Uh, it, and, you know, it does look like Saudi Arabia is sort of the model that, uh, yeah, that's so neat. I mean, the, 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 the Saudi government is afraid of its own people. And I guess that is often the case in some of these uh, uh, rather unpopular governments. But India, Prime Minister Modi belongs to the, and I may not pronounce this right, excuse me, I'm an American, Bharat, Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP, that I can say, which you describe as the political arm of the RSS. And I have no idea what that is, but you say its ties to fascism in Europe go back to the 1920s and 30s. I, I, I and listeners don't know that story. Do tell us, please, about that. Yes, and um, without getting too academic, um, this is kind of a, a 
short history lesson here. Oh, thank you. So <laughs> um, the RSS, or the full form is Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, which is uh, Hindi for the National Self-Service Club, which is kind of a, um, a misnomer for what that organization even is. Uh, it was founded in the 1920s as a militant Hindu nationalist organization. Uh, and kind of two, two aspects to it. One is that they were Hindu nationalists. They viewed um, uh, India, which was at that point a British colony, as intrinsically a Hindu state. And they uh, viewed the um, kind of the national ethos of India as being inseparable from uh-huh. the Hindu religion, which obviously raises some serious questions about what would be the political position of the sizable religious minority communities in uh, what was then British India, which was um, about almost a third Muslim and also Mm -hmm. had significant um, Christian and Sikh and Buddhist and other communities. Uh, So to declare India to be a Hindu nation would be to immediately marginalize more than a third of the population and make them second-class citizens in their own land. Mm. So that's number one. And number two, uh, the organization was militant right from its inception, that it believed in uh, so-called virtues of um, uh, being, uh, you know, of discipline and physical exercise and so on, which which don't in and of themselves sound problematic, except they were done with a very justly militaristic approach that you're instilling discipline in people to be fighters and to be fighters for the Hindu cause. And so the seeds of fascism, you could say, were sown right from the beginning. But then what happened was that um, not the founder of the RSS himself, but his mentor, uh, a man named Munje, uh, visited Italy. And at that time, the Mussolini government was brand new. Uh, And um, Munje was actually very impressed with what he saw there. Uh, He even visited some of the youth indoctrination camps that the Italian fascists ran. And he came back to India and he, uh, and this is even in his writings, he said that the Italian model would be good for the RSS to implement Uh uh, through its um, youth camps. Uh, So, so, you know, he, he fell in love with fascism when he saw it. And then the connections become even deeper and more explicit as of the second in command of the RSS, uh, who became the supreme leader of the RSS at some point in the 1930s, Mm. uh, published a book uh, titled We Are Our Nationhood Defined, in which he openly praises Nazi Germany And he says that Nazi Germany is a good example uh, of how to 
deal with minorities. Oh, uh, he literally said that. Yes, he literally said that. And um, it took the RSS something like seven decades uh, to finally publicly distance themselves from that book. Uh, and while they have publicly distanced themselves from that book, they still worship this supreme leader uh, who, who died long ago, of course, but they, but they still call him Guruji, which means like teacher, great uh -huh. teacher. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so very clearly they have no intention of uh, actually distancing themselves or apologizing for their fascist past. Uh, and, you know, this is the political party which Narendra Modi comes from. Oh, my. Oh, incredible. And America <laughs> always, I mean, we know there's there's the two big behemoths there, India and China. China is not a favored uh, government. They've never even pretended, as far as we know, which is pretty minimal, to be a functioning democracy. But India has, you know, their... Oh, yeah, India's okay. They pride itself on being a functioning democracy. Since being reelected in 2019, Modi, and he was reelected, has moved to quickly turn India into, it sounds like the model you were talking about, a theocratic nationalist country, which has intentionally included a great many citizens of India. So here we are in 2021, and what does that look like? It looks like an increasing what I think of as tightening of the noose. And it started out with Muslims for various reasons, mm -hmm. um, uh, partly because they are a large and easily identifiable minority, mm -hmm. uh, partly because there has for some time, and there's you know historic reasons for that, um, uh, been some conflicts between uh, sections of the Hindu community and sections of the Muslim community, uh, etc. And so this was kind of an easy target of hate. Mm. Uh, but rapidly, uh, the, the open marginalization has extended to other sections of the population. Uh, and um, these include people who are the lowest in the Hindu caste mm -hmm. hierarchy, mm -hmm. uh, um, known as the Dalits, or literally the oppressed. That's the term they use for themselves. Yeah. Uh, the you know upper caste elites use other you know derogatory terms for them, uh, but um, they refer to themselves as Dalits, and they are openly now a target of marginalization. Uh, so are Adivasis or indigenous peoples oh. uh, who are the oldest residents of India who were there before anyone else. Uh, and so are, you know, anyone who questions the systems of uh, caste and religious and gender hierarchy, for example, feminists, mm. uh, people who... Uh, assert the notion that women are equal to men, imagine that, mm. or people who are fighting for LGBTQ rights, mm -hmm. or people who are, you know, uh, who identify as some kind of communist or socialist or work to organize workers, you know, 
all of these people are increasingly finding themselves under the gun. Mm. Uh, and it's it's a very systematic consolidation of authority in the hands of the government and on behalf of an upper caste Hindu elite wanting to preserve their status and their power at the expense of everyone else. Hmm. Lovely. <laughs> How convenient. Well, it, it as a obviously India is a very large geographic country, and Kashmir, I believe, is a Muslim majority region. What is Modi's government doing to uh, the Kashmir region and the non-Hindus there? Yes. So, um, by way of short background, Kashmir was an independent kingdom during the period of. British India. And, you know, it, it wasn't the only one. There was a patchwork of such small kingdoms, uh, which were uh, nominally independent. Well, I mean, they had a large degree of independence from British rule. The um, uh, British ensured that uh, they never had the military power to challenge the British. And they also ensured that uh, those countries didn't have an independent foreign policy. You know, those kingdoms couldn't form uh, independent political relations with, say, the United States or China or something. Uh, but internally, they were pretty much free to do most of what they wanted. And one such country was, uh, one such kingdom was Kashmir. Mm -hmm. And Kashmir was ruled by this repressive Hindu ruler, uh, and the majority of the population was Muslim. Uh, and there was a freedom movement in Kashmir that long preceded uh, India's independence. And um, this movement wanted to get rid of their autocratic king and establish some form of democratic self-governance. So this was the kind of background prior to 1947 when the British mm -hmm. left India and partitioned what was then British India into India and Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And the British declared that uh, these princely states, as they were called, mm -hmm. these kingdoms, mm -hmm. uh, could choose. And when they said they could choose, they meant the king could choose unilaterally, whether to affiliate with India or with Pakistan. And that was a profoundly undemocratic way to um, decide what happens to that kingdom where, you know, literally one person uh, could make a decision for the entire um, uh, state. And, uh, you know, if democratic India in 1947 uh, actually believed in the principles it professed, it yeah. would have rejected that premise. Uh, but very conveniently, the government of India in 1947 kind of accepted that premise. And when the uh, um, you know, king of Kashmir said that uh, he was affiliating with India, rumor has it that, in fact, there's some evidence that he didn't really want to do it either. He wanted to be independent, but um, his hand was forced by uh, a conflict where, um, uh, you know, where a group of uh, 
armed actors from outside, from what is now Pakistan, uh, entered um, uh, entered Kashmir, and and a small scale war erupted. Right. Uh, and, and this was not this was not the official Pakistani military. This was this was a um, uh, you know just an informal militia of some kind who were who did not you know they were not affiliated with any country. Uh, but but regardless, you know whatever the reason was, uh, he decided to affiliate with India, and the Indian state said, okay, now you're a part of India, and they. Uh, intervene militarily to try to stop that armed incursion, and mm. that led to a war with Pakistan, etc. Mm-hmm. But what the government of India said at that point was that eventually, once the situation stabilizes, mm. we are going to hold a referendum, uh, and um, you know, uh, whatever the people of Kashmir decide, that's what will happen. Uh, but that plebiscite, as it was called, was never held. Uh Uh, And so um, Kashmir kind of de facto became a part of India without Uh ever a proper consultation with people in Kashmir happening. Uh Another little bit of another little bit of background is that uh, the accession of Kashmir to India was treated as provisional right from the beginning. And there was an article in the Indian constitution known as Article 370, uh, which provided for special status, including a fair degree of regional autonomy for Kashmir. And um, uh, in practice, that was not actually implemented. And the government of India chose to, you know, uh, impose itself upon Kashmir in all kinds of ways. And all of this precedes the BJP. So it's not uh, that the BJP were uniquely bad guys in this regard. Um, well, and, I, and in response to all that, there was an armed insurgency that started in Kashmir. You know, it's been going on for a while, but it especially uh, kind of flared up in the late 1980s. And in response, there was... Uh, repression by the Indian armed forces, and it, you know, rapidly escalated, and then it, you know, ebbed and flowed for some decades now. And what the Modi government has done is it has unilaterally escalated that conflict by uh, getting rid of Article 370 of the Constitution in a very dubious way. Um, I won't, you know, get into the legal technicalities, but they did it in a very dubious way. And that was, um, you know, that got rid of even the on-paper protection that Kashmir had. And since then, they imposed an internet blackout on Kashmir, which, you know, ran for a long time. And it was designed to ensure that news did not get out of Kashmir. And the reason was, of course, that they unleashed extremely violent repression on Kashmir with, you know, re- reports of arbitrary detention and torture, etc. cetera. Uh, so, so that's a brief background on what's happening in Kashmir now. Oh, and one, one uh, critical point about Article 370 is that it limited the extent to which people from other parts of India could acquire land in Kashmir and set up businesses there, etc. And by removing that obstacle, 
uh, they've opened up Kashmir to becoming, you know, more of an economic colony of, uh-huh. um, you know, of uh, Indian big business as well. Oh, isn't that swell? My goodness gracious. <laughs> you know, you talk about what happened in, in Kashmir with uh, regard to a temporary divide. I couldn't help but be reminded of the 1954 Geneva Agreement, which temporarily uh, divided Vietnam until they'd have a plebiscite. It didn't quite happen that way. It's mm-hmm. funny how history does that all over the world. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is called Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a heavy lift. We need everybody involved. We're talking about uh, the lack of democracy in India, which is allegedly a democratic state. Our guest is Basav Sen, who is a climate justice project director at the Institute for Policy Studies and has written about uh, fossil-fueled uh, fascism in India. And occasionally drifting across our 24-7 news screens is the farmers' revolt in India. I frankly don't know what that's about, but I'll guess it has something to do with concentrating and centralizing power into the hands of a few. How big is the farmers' revolt? What's it about? And what's the BJP government's response to it? Great question. So um, earlier in the interview, I had mentioned this politically connected billionaire named uh, Gautam Adani. Uh, And there's another um, very politically connected billionaire family. In fact, the um, richest people in India with a very similar sounding name, uh, they are the Ambani's. Uh, And um, they also have very close ties with the um, BJP government. Now, what the government has done is changed the farm procurement laws. Uh, traditionally, the government of India was the buyer of last resort for farm products. Uh, they had this uh, minimum price support system which uh, guaranteed that um, farmers would get at least a minimum price for selling their products and you know uh, wouldn't be bargained down to a price that's so low that they could barely support themselves. Now, um, this minimum price system and government procurement system was not perfect, granted. Uh, but uh, instead of fixing the imperfections of the system and making it more robust, uh, what the BJP government sought to do was to scrap it in favor of privatized procurement by businesses. And that opened up the farm sector to uh, large processed food companies and both um, the Ambani group and the Adani group have um, agribusiness processed food interests. And what that would do is give these giant buyers power over farmers, power to dictate low prices. And this is happening in a context in which the agricultural sector in India is already under severe pressure. Um, And it's under severe pressure for a wide variety of reasons, at least some of which have to do with climate change. Uh. Uh, The fact that, uh, you know, India is already affected by drought and water scarcity, and that puts pressure on farmers. Uh, and also that 
um, India's soils have become degraded in many places because of uh, intensive agricultural practices dating back to the so-called Green Revolution. Uh, so um, uh, for all of these reasons, the agricultural sector in India is under pressure. And there are other reasons as well having to do with uh, uh, the so-called opening up of the economy that has happened over the last several decades. But uh, anyway, uh, one of the consequences of that is that India has an astonishingly high rate of farmers' suicide. Uh, Indian farmers have been driven to the brink of, you know, despair and a growing number are killing themselves. And in this context, if you hand over the agricultural sector uh, to large corporations who have every incentive to drive down prices even further, um, that's literally the death knell for farmers in India. And um, in response, you know, farmers uh, naturally took to the streets and started protesting, and these protests rapidly became uh, the largest in the world ever. Uh, and by some estimates, at some points of time, about maybe 20% of India's population, which would be uh, almost 300 million people, were involved in either protesting on the street or in you know solidarity strikes, staying home from work, etc. Uh, and um, this is honestly an issue that should have received more coverage. I mean, in, in all fairness, it did receive a certain amount of media coverage, uh, but it should have received more coverage in, uh, you know, Western and other foreign media than it did. Yeah, well. uh, and the Modi government's response is predictable. They have engaged in uh, pretty violent repression against the farmers. Uh, mm. But they've done one other thing that's extremely dangerous. So the farmers' protests have drawn in farmers of all kinds of backgrounds from all over the country. But particularly around the capital, around Delhi, a lot of the farmers who've been taking part in the protests are from the state of job and they are by religion sick. So the Modi government has not lost any time in turning this again into, into what they usually do, some kind of uh, religious conflict. And they've tried to portray it as six being disloyal, six being uh, anti-national and anti-Hindu, which they you know which they treat as one and the same. Uh, etc. And, um, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to paint the farmers' protest as some kind of sick separatism. Oh, my. Uh, and they're using that as an excuse to go after uh, even, even like social media support and um, uh, just people speaking out in support of the farmers. Uh, for example, they... Um, pressured Twitter to block accounts who were posting supportively about the farmers' protests. Uh, they targeted journalists who were covering the farmers' protests um, uh, fairly and favorably. 
they they targeted climate activists, youth climate activists from uh, Fridays for Future India, which is the um, Indian chapter of the worldwide uh, youth climate movement. Uh-huh. Uh, and they even um, arrested one one you know uh, one of their um, leading one of the leading Fridays for Future India activists named Disharavi um, uh, for something as routine as uh, sharing a social media toolkit for you know how to post on Twitter in solidarity with the farmers Um, and if this isn't criminalization of venting speech what is Absolutely amazing, the stuff we don't know. But uh, how, has, how has the U.S. benefited from all this? How, what's our relation with Modi? And there was, you know, the former guy, that orange thing. But now we have uh, uh, Biden. What's, what's the sense of the U.S. relation with uh, Modi? Um, good question. Um, with the orange guy, it it kind of operated on one, you know, kind of one notch up, and I will get to that in a minute. Okay. Uh, but a lot of the U.S. policy around India and the tendency to um, ignore human rights violations in India uh, have to do with two things. One, big business, and two, China. Uh, Let me explain both. Mm -hmm. So um, I mentioned earlier that India is one of the world's largest economies. It's maybe the seventh largest economy in the world. Uh, It has a huge population, uh, one-sixth of the world's population. So it's a very large uh, potential market, an existing market for goods and services. For instance, um, uh, Facebook has its largest number of subscribers of any country in India. Uh, And um, uh, given all of that, oh, and also some other reasons, you know, uh, because of the so-called liberalization or opening up of India's economy to foreign investment, uh, it's become a very attractive target for U.S. corporations to invest in. Um, India also has a large pool of um, uh, educated workers who, uh, you know, U.S. companies often outsource their operations for, say, software development, et cetera, to India. Uh, So, you know, for all of these reasons, the big business community and within that particularly the tech industry, Silicon Valley, like the relationship, you know, like having a good relationship with India. And that has influenced U.S. foreign policy with regard to India going way back. For instance, here's a few examples. Um, Narendra Modi, and this is not very well known, uh, before he became prime minister of India, he was the head of government of the state of Gujarat. And while he was the head guy in Gujarat, there was a pogrom, there was a massacre of the Muslim population in that state. And there was an increasing amount of evidence that the government and Modi personally at least helped cover up the massacre 
and there's even some you know some evidence that he instigated it and based on these concerns the us state department actually issued a travel ban on modi so modi was not supposed to get a us visa and come to the united states and then when he was elected prime minister in 2014 uh, the U.S. State Department, and this was under Obama, promptly forgot that, uh, and you know, uh, you know, got rid of that that ban on Modi's visa. So now, you know, so since then, Modi could start making state visits to the United States, and uh, this is so disgusting. But you know how Time Magazine has this uh, uh, annual list of. 100 most influential people mm -hmm. uh, in the world. So I think it was in the year 2014 or maybe 2015. I don't remember exactly which year, but one year, um, one of those 100 most influential people was Narendra Modi. Sure. And the blurb about Modi was written by none other than Barack Obama. So, um, and, you know, mm -hmm. in it, he waxes about how Modi is a visionary leader who's modernizing India and opening up its economy, which mm, is mm -hmm. shorthand for opening it up to Western capital. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, that's an indication of how and why U.S. big business and therefore U.S. politics is uh, aligned with any government of India, including a fascist uh -huh. government, and uh -huh. are willing to turn a blind eye to mm. this, uh, uh, you know, horrendous human rights abusing government. The other reason is China and yes. the U.S. geopolitical rivalry with China. Yes. Because China is now considered the enemy number one mm. in U.S. foreign policy, and because India and China are rival superpowers in Asia and have, um, you know, rivalry going back several decades, uh, some in the U.S. foreign policy establishment therefore view India as a natural ally in containing and encircling China. So that I would argue uh -huh. is the second motivation for why uh, the U.S establishment in general seems to be comfortable with uh, Modi and willing to ignore his abuses. But then with Trump, this kind of got escalated to a higher level because very clearly Trump and those in his inner circle uh, viewed Modi as a kindred spirit. Uh, they recognized on some level that this pattern of emerging far-right populists worldwide uh, is something they identified with and something they liked. And this is also true in the way they talked about Brazil, for instance, after uh, this guy Bolsonaro came to power. Um, so uh, with Trump, there was also that ideological alignment uh, with yes. the far-right of Indian politics. Right. So with, with Obama, it was more just, oh, it's good for business, whereas Trump, it's, yeah, ideological, another authoritarian. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Got it. Well, well, let's see what Biden has to do. He's got a lot on his plate. I have no idea. I believe he's a bit to the left of Obama, but 
We shall see. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with uh, Basav Sen from the Institute of Policy Studies, who's written about the fossil fuel industry lining up behind far-right authoritarians in India and what's really going on in India. You know, I, they, there's that old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well... I guess that means we overlooked a lot of stuff that's not particularly pretty. Is there, what about resistance to Modi? I mean, I know here in America, there's really two parties. In many countries, there's a whole lot of parties. What about resistance to, to Modi? Is he, how strong is he? And, and you know, the farmers are protesting, but how, what else is going on in opposition to, to Modi? So... I'll kind of draw a distinction between social movement opposition and official political party opposition. Okay. Um, and um, uh, this may not surprise you, but the former, the social movement opposition, is uh, very, how would I describe it, vital and, um, uh, you know, very, you know, visionary, robust, etc. And the uh, traditional political party opposition uh, in the electoral arena is weak and confused and divided. Uh, And, you know, it's, it's kind of an object lesson in how it is the failure of the political establishment that leads to uh, the emergence of fascism. I mean, this was true in the Weimar Republic in Germany, where it was the weakness and you know indecisiveness of the Weimar Republic that allowed uh, Hitler and the Nazis to emerge as the strong alternative. And it's much the same in India, where um, there's a multitude of political parties. Uh, and often it appears that they have no particular reason for existence other than as uh, uh, vehicles for certain individuals to capture power. Yeah. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, the, they often have no clear ideology or articulated position. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and often they are in league with the powers that be, which mm-hmm. often means... Uh, and, you know, um, there's credible accusations of corruption against many of them. Uh, and the Indian political system is not necessarily only the political party's fault. Uh, the Indian election system, uh, in a way, allows large minority parties to capture power because um, every parliamentary district uh, you know, uh, whoever gets highest votes of all the candidates automatically wins in that district, regardless of if they got under 50% of the vote. So if, suppose, a district has five candidates running and the the one candidate who gets the most votes gets only 35%, that person wins. And that is one of the reasons why the BJP has been able to capture power and win uh, parliamentary majorities, even though their actual support in the population is about one third. Uh, So, you know, 
for both of those reasons, uh, the ineptitude of the political parties and the poorly designed electoral system, the BJP has been able to, you know, uh, win elections. Um, but when it comes to the social movement opposition, it's really amazing and inspiring. And obviously the farmer's revolt is one of them, uh, but also there's um, uh, emerging movements of worker organizing both within and outside of traditional trade mm -hmm. unions. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, one of the activists who was targeted in this repression of uh, uh, the farmers' protests was this young woman who uh, was very active in building solidarity between the workers' movements and the farmers' movement. And very clearly, the government found her to be a threat. Um, her name's Nodeep Kaur, and she was like only 24 years. She is uh, only 24 years old. Uh, and um, the government, you know, clearly viewed her as a serious threat because they don't like solidarity between farmers and workers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and... And then, you know, there's the LGBTQ movement, sure. the women's movement, yes. the, you know, the, the uh, movement of artisanal fishing communities. Hmm. Uh, there's all kinds of amazing social movements in India. And um, they have been the backbone of resistance to this uh, fascist regime. Hmm. So here in the U.S., uh, and, and most of our listeners are in the U.S., not all of them, but uh, what is there anything we can do to, to help uh, fight uh, you know, the increase of, uh, of fascism in, in India right now? Is there, are there any organizations uh, that, that can help, and what can we do? So um, two kind of easy and obvious things to do. Uh, well, actually, I mentioned a few. Okay. Um, num number one is um, educate yourself and others. Uh, and the reason I'm saying it, I mean, it sounds like an almost uh, kind of trite thing to say, but the reason I'm saying it is that, um, as I pointed out earlier in my interview, um, uh, there's widespread ignorance about the situation in India. Uh, in the United States and many other um, uh, countries outside of India uh, and outside of that region, especially. Uh, and um, uh, it is really important for people to know that uh, India is a seriously affected country when it comes to massive human rights violations against uh, religious and ethnic minorities against women and LGBTQ people and workers uh, and, you know, poor and low income people and so on. Uh, and um, that's not something that people in the U.S. and even, you know, progressive people in the U.S. know much about. And uh, it's important to know about it and to spread that information. Okay. Number two, uh, believe it or not, um, the political arm, the overseas political arm of the BJP uh, actually exists in the United States. And um, they even back 
candidates for office. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, uh, educate yourself about candidates from, you know, every level from uh, local to federal who are running in your area. And if they have connections with uh, the far right in India, then uh, it, it's important to to point that out. It's important to uh, yeah, let, you let campaign know. against them. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. We, we mm -hmm. just raise the issue. And our members of Congress do listen. They do pay attention. I know a lot of people mm -hmm. think they don't, but they know they need to get reelected and they do care about this stuff very much. So do, do you think that... Uh, I mean, there's there's the climate democracy, economic and climate democracy, and mm -hmm. are, the people of India must obviously they care about uh, climate democracy and economic democracy. Mm -hmm. Any uh, sense of optimism for the future? Huh? <laughs> well, um, I'm an eternally optimistic person. Oh, good. And I do believe that the that the emerging uh, uh, critical mass of social movement in India does bode well for the future. And this is something that actually predates the BJP government. There's been growing social movements and growing coordination between social movements mm. uh, from different spheres who, uh, you know, um, come from very different universes and you may think that they may not um, you know, see each other's viewpoint very much, but they're increasingly starting to see themselves as uh, being in alignment. So, um, uh, you know, factory workers in big cities with the, uh, uh, you know, rural farming populations, uh, being in alignment and, you know, people from all parts of the country, people from, you know, various different parts of the incredibly diverse uh, ethnic and religious makeup of India and linguistic, I should add, because there's, you know, yeah. tons of languages in India. Yeah. Uh, so um, um, that does bode well for the future. And what I'm hoping is that, um, these social movements reach a point where uh, a government of India that doesn't have the consent of the movements just cannot function anymore. Excellent. Well, if people want to read more, this has been very, very interesting and educational. And if people want to read more of your work, uh, Institute for Policy Studies, uh, what is that, IPS.org or something like that? It's ips-dc.org. Ah, yes, and that's where your writings are. Thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive, and uh, I'm hopeful for the future of India. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you so much, Bert. Thanks for having me on your show.